the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In 1966 a filmmaker introduced something that had been heretofore unknown in the film world. It was called a post-credit scene. Something that was new to the film world, but something that had been around for a long time in the literary world, known as an epilogue in a novel or in a book. The post-credit scene added information that wasn't really sort of proper to the story that had been told in the film. The story was really concluded, but the post-credit scene would add additional information about some of the characters. It sometimes answered questions about what happened to them in the future or left us with a final twist. Throughout the 60s and the 70s, post-credit scenes were used extremely sparingly, about 10 of them total in those two decades. But the number of post-credit scenes positively exploded in 2008 when a film titled Iron Man was released. And at the very end of the film, a mysterious figure comes in and tells Tony Stark, the main character, about what he called an Avengers initiative. This was a new kind of post-credit scene that pointed to a broader universe that would intertwine various films. And now you have more post-credit scenes in one year because it's become such a popular thing than you would have in all of the 60s or all of the 70s or all of the 80s or all of the 90s. They're all over the place. It's a pretty effective way of ending a movie, I think. It makes me watch all the credits, hoping that there might be something at the very end, you know, that the camera might then open up on another scene. You might get just one final tidbit before you go home. And so I learn about all the people that were part of the lighting and the grip and all of that sort of stuff for many, many, many minutes. And then oftentimes you go home without no post-credit scene. But, um, but when you see it, it, I think it's an effective way of telling a story. I love them. And maybe that's a part of what makes John 21 such a fun portion of scripture. John 21 is the post-credit scene of the Gospel of John. It's an epilogue, if you prefer the literary term. I like to think of it as the post-credit scene. The story has been told, really in its entirety, by the end of John chapter 20. Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to the women. He appears to the remaining members of the twelve. He overcomes the doubts of Thomas. And then there's a concluding sentence. These things were written that you may believe, and by believing, have life in his name. 
credits. That's when the credits would roll in any normal film. And you'd see cast in order of appearance, you know, the word, and then God, and then the disciples, and then the Pharisees. You know, that's what the the credits would then read. And at the very end of all of that, the camera would then focus in on a new scene. One that is inspired, but it's not really a part of the, the narrative formally. It's an epilogue. It's a post-credit scene. It's distinct in a bunch of different ways. For example, it's the only chapter that doesn't talk about belief, that doesn't talk about belief. And it starts with these words, after this. So it's telling you that it's after sort of the end of the normal narrative. And actually, this post-credit scene accomplishes everything that you could hope for. It gives some final concluding information about a few main characters. It reveals who the narrator narrator of this whole story is. And it sets up the sequel. There are two main scenes as part of this post-credit portion of John. And then a conclusion. We have some miraculous fishing. And then we have an astounding restoration. And then we have a conclusion. So let's take a look at this. First, we've got some miraculous fishing. So after the credits... We're in a room with seven disciples, and Simon Peter seems to be agitated, looking for something to do. Let's go fishing, he says to the disciples, most of whom were fishermen before the Lord called them away from their nets, and so they decide that they're going to go to the place where they had been before Jesus had called them, a return to the beginning. And they have an illustration throughout the whole night as they fish throughout the entire evening of how fruitless their life can be without the Lord Jesus. They fish all night and they haven't caught a single thing. No Top Gun hat to be given out for the longest catch. Nothing. Not a single thing. Not one fish in the net. And as day breaks, there's a stranger that's standing on the shore. At least they think it's a stranger. Perhaps in the new light of dawn, they can't quite make out the fact that it's Jesus. Maybe they're like disciples on the road to Emmaus who are prevented at first from recognizing him. In any case, he asks them, hey boys, you catch anything last night? And I need you to know that what I say next is some speculation, okay? I want for you to know that there are sort of three different things that we can talk about in the course of the sermon. Sometimes the Bible says something directly and I just have to say it and announce it directly. Sometimes there's good and necessary inference from the passage, so something that should be preached because we need to infer this from the text. Sometimes there is sanctified speculation, but I want you to know in those places where there's some sanctified speculation so that you don't you know, and I don't confuse this from those times where there is a very direct preaching of a command from Scripture or a word from Scripture. I think the response of the disciples illustrates the fact that they had been with Jesus. I think it is fair to believe that this demonstrates the fact that the disciples have been with Jesus. Jesus asked them, haven't you caught even a little? And the one thing that you probably know about fishermen, if you are not a fisherman, is that the fish stories get bigger and bigger and bigger, and that the amount that you caught and the success that you had gets expanded as you talk about all of this. And so, if you know fishermen, you might expect that these men who had been fishing all night and had caught nothing would say, oh yeah, I've been pretty decent. Or maybe, you know, we had some big ones in the net and they just got away. But they don't hide the fact that they have been completely unsuccessful. Hey, boys, you catch anything? No, not a thing. And in response, the stranger just tells them, well, why don't you cast on the other side 
Something I'm guessing they had tried a lot throughout the evening. I mean, it had been a whole night of fishing, and these people know what they're doing. It's not like the right side of the boat is the lucky side of the boat, and they had used the left side of the boat all night, and now they're going to try the other side of the boat, but they listen to the stranger, they throw the net into the other side, and in response, there is a miraculous catch of fish, an astounding amount, 153 fish in total. Now, there's an amazing amount of speculation about this, this 153 and what it means. I want to share with you some of it. Early on in the life of the church, Jerome, one early church leader, said that the naturalist Opion said that there were 153 species of fish in the world. And so the disciples had caught one of every species of fish in the world to illustrate the mission of the church to draw every human being without distinction. Others, like my boy Augustine, noted that 153 is a triangular number of 17. What that means is if you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 all the way up to 17, you get 153. And he says if you take 17, which is the triangular number of 153, you get 10 and 7. And 10 stands for the Ten Commandments. And seven stands for the sevenfold spirit of God. Others followed Augustine and all that. They noted the triangular number of 17. And they said, but it's actually the Ten Commandments. And then seven is four and three. Three for the Trinity, four for the four walls of the new Jerusalem. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. We pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible simply tells the truth. And that morning, as Jesus came to the shore and dawn is breaking and told them to cast their nets on the other side, they caught 153 of them. And, and John notes, well, it's the Lord. That's when he recognizes, when the miracle happens, he recognizes that it's the Lord. And then Peter um, does Peter stuff immediately following after all of that. The, the text tells us that he puts on his coat and then he jumps into the water and makes his way to the shore. So Peter always has been my favorite disciple because he just is so instinctual in the way that he does everything. He has the highest highs and the lowest lows of all of the disciples. And as he realizes that it's Jesus, for some reason, the dummy puts on a coat and then jumps in the water. That's not what you do when you go into the water. My kids are at the lake right now. And I can guarantee that when I join them later, I won't be there like they're about to swim. Let's put on their winter coats here before they go into the water. That's not the way that you enter into the water. And so what I think is happening here is that Peter is losing his mind with excitement simply at seeing his Savior. And that's beautiful. And may that be true of us. Jesus is here. Well, let me gather up my books and computer. I'll jump in the water and swim to him. I want to lose my mind at excitement when the Lord Jesus comes. And as Peter gets to the shore, leaving behind all of his friends to try to bring in this heavy catch of fish... He sees that Jesus has made a coal fire and there are some fish on there already for breakfast for the disciples. Even 
as the Lord Jesus has risen triumphant from the grave, even as he has conquered sin and death and the devil, he still serves. He serves his disciples, serving them breakfast here. And I love that this is all happening in a certain sort of context. John notes in verse 4 that dawn is just breaking. That dawn is just breaking as all of this takes place. John does something that's interesting in his gospel. He notes sort of what time of day things are. And if you have your, you know, your gospels of John with, or you can just take a look at your Bible, if you page back to John chapter 13, you note that he, uh, if you, well, it's on 84 for me, but it might be different for you. But if you look at John chapter 13 and you look at verse 30, as Jesus is approaching the cross, the gospel of John tells us what's happening in, in the sort of context, what time of day it is. And this is right after he announces that Judas is going to betray him. And in John 13, verse 30, we're told just one phrase, and it was night. It sort of sets the scene for the rest of the gospel of John through the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize that as Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, that this is a time of darkness. And in a world without electric light, the only light would have been candles or, or oil lamps that would have been around. So, so not, much, not much illumination to the scene. The darkness is thick and pressing in as Jesus approaches the end. And the text leaves us with this heavy feeling of darkness because Jesus is about to die and we're about to witness the death of the Lord. Now dawn is breaking, and all is well, because Jesus is alive. You and I face a difficult world, and sometimes it's hard for us to see. But I want to tell all of us this morning that the world in which we live is not the darkness of dusk that will lead to an endless night for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. But it's the darkness of dawn that for all who trust in the Lord Jesus will lead to an endless day. And the post-credit scene in John is helping to illustrate that. Then there's an astounding restoration. Peter is soggy on the beach, soaked, his coat soaked through, sitting down for breakfast with his Savior. And Jesus asks him a simple question three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter had just a few nights before all of this betrayed Jesus three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And for each one of those betrayals, Jesus asks one simple question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter is discouraged by them, by those questions. Yeah, Jesus, I love you. Yes, I love you. Jesus, you know all things. You know that I love you. And each time after Jesus asks the question and Peter provides an answer, Jesus gives him a commission and invites him into the life of the church, into the mission. Really, Jesus is setting up the sequel here. The story of the Lord Jesus is not going to come to an end with John 21. It will continue. It will continue with the church that Peter is now being commissioned to serve. 
with the lambs and the sheep that will be gathered in to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, served by Peter. Jesus is setting up the sequel, the sequel in which we are a part, the sequel of the church, of all of those who hear the gospel message and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, believe that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead for you, and that that is actually all that you need. There's also a powerful truth in all of this. As the sequel is set up, And the church is going to be served. It's not going to be served by the perfect, but by the forgiven. It's not going to be served by the perfect, but by the forgiven. As Jesus approaches the end of his life, he's he's really betrayed by two disciples. One is Judas, and one is Peter. Judas betrays him in the most obvious way by handing him over to the authorities to be crucified. But Peter's betrayal is stark too, isn't it? When just being asked, hey, do you know him? Peter says, no. And then he says, no. And then he says, no. It's a stark betrayal. I mean, Peter's been following him for three years and has been a part of the inner circle. I mean, John sort of sets up the fact that Peter and James and John are all in this like inner circle. They know Jesus better than than anyone else. And having dwelt with him for, for three years and walked in his dust and experienced all of his miracles and recognized that he is God. The first time that he's confronted with some opposition, just a simple question. Hey, do you know that guy that's being crucified? Peter says three times, I don't know what you're talking about. Stop talking to me. It's a denial. It's a betrayal of Jesus. And yet, while, while the sin against the Lord Jesus is just as severe as Judas, the response could not be more different. Judas recognizes that what he did was evil and tries to run away. And he actually takes his life. It's an act of power. It's an act of control. It's an act of self-reliance. Peter recognizes his own shame and sin and runs to Jesus. It illustrates the only two possible ways of us dealing with the reality of our own sin. If and when you're caught in sin, how are you going to respond? Oh, that was a mistake. I'm going to grin and bear it. Oh, I won't fall into that again. I will rely on myself. Or will you run to Jesus? Because Jesus forgives and Jesus restores. And the only way to deal with it is just to run to him when you see him, when you know he's near, and to acknowledge that you've done wrong. And to admit, Lord, I have sinned, but I, I love you. And Jesus restores. He restores Peter and he tells him, hey, not only do I forgive you, I restore you and I'm giving you a commission to serve my church. And if you want to serve the Lord Jesus, it cannot be because you are perfect because you aren't. But Christ's church is not served by the perfect, but by the forgiven. And so run to Jesus. And as we get to very near to the end here, Peter again illustrates uh, that he is not perfect. And this is my favorite, you know, like, again, why is my favorite disciple? He's such a dummy. He's been restored And Jesus is like, listen, in the future, you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go. And then Peter's like, yeah, but what about John? And the last words in the gospel of John that Jesus speaks are just, hey, Peter, mind your own business. All right. Like that's the conclusion of the testimony that we're given in the gospel of John. 
Jesus comes to the shore and he calls these disciples, he calls them children. And here, Peter's acting like that. Like your kids are going to want the other person to experience something bad. Like if they realize they've gotten caught, they're going to be like, yeah, but did you notice? Well, in my family, did you notice what else he did? And the response is always, hey, mind your business, bud. And here, as Peter's like, hey, what about John? You know, John, he's not always been perfect. You know, you love him. Peter, mind your business, all right, man? And that's the end. That's the end of what Jesus says. It's like, it's great. It's the end of the post-credit scene. And then, and then you have a couple more verses. And John's like, yeah, so, so listen. He said, you know, if, if he's going to stay until I return again, that's up to me. You don't worry about it. You worry about your own stuff. Let me clear up some confusion. He wasn't saying necessarily that I wasn't going to die. Just that if he wanted for that to be the case, he could make it that way. And he's like, oh, and also. And then there's this sort of reveal. I'm the one that's been writing all of this. And you can ask anybody, it's true. And then one final verse. He says, now, now Jesus did a lot of other things. If you were to write about all of them, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain all the books that would have all of this information in them. It's a beautiful concluding statement. And from the very beginning, he talks about being filled with, with the light of the Lord Jesus. That when you receive the word of God, that you're, you're filled up with it. He filled up jars of water and they became wine. And, and now he's talking about filling up the world with books. And we're told at the very end... Man, if we were to write all of them, the, the world would be totally filled up with them. There's not enough space for all of them. And I wonder if this isn't also setting up the sequel. If the world is filled up, there's no more space. Well, then I suppose we need a new world. Jesus is going to return again. And when he does, he'll bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to refine and renew everything. So that all who know and trust him will experience the breaking of dawn and the endless day of dwelling with the Father forever and ever and ever. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook, Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.